This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation. We're going to talk about a really important topic for every personal injury trial, and that is getting good, effective testimony from your treating doctors. I'm here with my partner, Mallory Peacock. Mallory, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Hanging in there. <laughs> good. Before we get in here, I want to, as always, give a shout out to Law Pods. Uh, you all may have noticed, I think one of the only low star reviews you have on the podcast app is complaining about our sound quality. I think some of you all may have noticed we've gotten better sound quality because we switched uh, our production to Law Pods. Law Pods helps. They produce our podcast. It's easy. All I have to do is talk to someone twice a month and they do everything else, all the editing, all the putting it together, all the putting it out there in the world. And if you are thinking about doing a podcast, which is a really good way to get your name out there, I highly recommend Law Pods. All right. Well, before we get started, Michael, I did hear that you were going to be speaking at a couple of events coming up soon that maybe some of the listeners might be interested in. Yeah, there's a couple of events coming up in October. The first one is really near and dear to my heart uh, because I'm the education chair who put it together. And that's the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys Annual Symposium. Uh, that's going to be October 6th through October 8th in Austin, Texas. Uh, we have a fabulous program that we put together. Uh, I'm speaking. You and Sonia are speaking as well, uh, along with a lot of other people we've had on our uh, on Trial Lawyer Nation. Uh, for example, Joe Freed, Michael Leiserman, Joe Carmelingo, Jay Vaughn, lots of other, you know, just great speakers, great content, and it's going to be a really good time. Uh, Trial Lawyer Nation will be there, too, with a booth at that event, as well as at Trial Lawyers University. That's October 27th through 29th. I'll be speaking on the 27th and 28th on, on trucking. We have a trucking section. Uh, the Also, two other fun things about the Trial Lawyers University event there at the end of the month, in, at the end of October in Vegas, is one, uh, on the afternoons of the 27th and 28th, we're going to have a Bring Your File workshop opportunities so people can bring their cases and meet with myself and some of the other top trucking lawyers like Jay Mon, uh, Joe Freed, and, uh, you know, no obligation. We'll, we'll sit there and we'll go and brainstorm your case with you and try to, you can walk away with a, a better game plan, good anchors. Uh, and I love doing that kind of case strategy. The other thing is we were going to be doing some on Saturday, the 29th of October, some live recordings of Trial Lawyer Nation. So if you ever want to see how all this works, you want to see an interview going on live, it might be kind of fun. So we'll be doing that there as well. That'll be really cool. I, I think uh, I, w I would get a kick out of watching watching you interview someone else. I've watched you interview other people and it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You got to be in the room with Randy McGinn and some other people. It's been fun. Yeah. So let's go on to the topic. Mallory, why do we need to get testimony from our treating doctors? 
Well, um, it's critical for a couple of purposes. The main one, I think, other than for making sure you have a clear appellate record and and proving all of the elements of your claim, um, which I think is the obvious one, it's a critical component of the story that you're trying to tell to the jury. It's a way to bridge the gap between what happened in this crash and now what is your client's life like? How has it been affected? And it's it's that bridge that's necessary for the jury to move from one piece of the story to the other. Uh, so from liability to damages, you need this bridge of sort of expert testimony to tie it all together and move forward towards towards damages. And why do we always at our firm, you know, try whenever possible to use an actual treating doctor instead of just hiring a, a paid expert? Well, I mean, I think there's value in, in doing it both ways. Um, so if you don't have a doctor that's a very good communicator, um, which some doctors aren't, uh, then hiring someone to provide that bridge is important because it's such a critical piece of the case. You want the jury to understand how the injuries occurred, what they are, and from a medical perspective, what's been done. But the treating doctor just has so much more credibility than someone that you could hire because it's someone that's followed your client from the very beginning, from when the crash occurred up until when you depose them. So so they have a longer history um, and they're harder to cross-examine because they're testifying from a place of personal knowledge as well as expert testimony, as opposed to just a place of expert testimony that that you've hired someone to give. I agree 100%. I mean, unless the doctor is just totally non-cooperative or just a really, really bad testifier or has something that makes them very impeachable in their background, I think it's always better to have the treating doctor. What are some challenges you see of, of, in getting treating doctors to give coherent, clear testimony? So just like with any expert, any scientist, any engineer, any doctor, they speak their own language. And getting them to get out of doctor language into language that everyday people can understand is a big challenge because they take for granted what they know, their education, their training, and their experience in the field makes them automatically know what some of these words mean. And to them, they're elementary. Whereas if you're just a regular person off the street that has no experience with these injuries or this kind of doctor, all of it can sound very foreign. The other, I guess, challenge too is that, you know, doctors aren't professional testifiers like an expert witness is. So they they need a lot of help with how to tell a compelling story. They are not professional storytellers like we are. And just like with any witness, they don't know what makes a good, compelling story, um, and you have to tell them. I agree with that. I think the, you know, your first point that they tend to use technical words. I think, you know, we have to remember that our role in the trial story is to be the, the juror's guide. So jurors are the heroes. They're the ones that are going to do something heroic. Hopefully the defendant or someone on the defense team is the villain. But we're the guides. And so when doctors use technical terms, which they're going to, they're, and, they, and it's appropriate that they should, but then it's our job to make sure that we're listening with the beginner's mind so that when there's a term that a juror might not have heard, we say, wait a minute, doctor, you said the word radiculopathy. What does radiculopathy mean? Or you said, you know, whatever it is, what is that? Can you explain that to us? Can you show that to us? Uh, so that, you know, we're making sure the juror's questions are, are answered and, uh, and also showing that we care about them understanding it. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. And I think it's a real challenge for more experienced lawyers in personal injury because you start to 
speak like the doctors, right? You become an expert in that field. And so some of these words that you take advantage of knowing, <laughs> your, your jury's not going to know. And so it is hard to think about the testimony from the juror's perspective, especially when you're more experienced, because you already know what the, the words mean. I, I think I had an easier time deposing doctors uh, when I was less experienced it, in this regard, only because I didn't know what things meant. So I would just say, what does that mean? What is this? How does that work? What, what do we do here? And those are the kind of questions that, that you have to be comfortable asking because you're the voice of the jurors in, in this scenario. Yeah, I think that that whole beginner's mind concept, which I mentioned earlier, is, you know, yes, you do need to become a technical expert, but you need to also keep that ear of, keep the ear of the beginner. And, you know, when those concepts or words come in, you know, you can't say, well, doctor, you and I know this, but the jurors are kind of dumbasses that aren't very educated. Can you explain it for them? It's got to be, you know, doctor, what does that mean? Can you tell me more about this? Can you explain this to me? Can you explain this to, even better, can you explain this to us? And that way, you know, you're their guide, you're bringing them through there. That's so important. Another thing about treating doctor testimony, do you think it's better to do it on video so you know you have it or to do it live in the courtroom if, you know, if video is an option in your jurisdiction? So I always think that a live witness is better unless they're very difficult to understand and need subtitles, <laughs> right? So, and that, that is the case sometimes, especially with doctors, because they use a lot of really big, complicated words. Sometimes you really do need subtitles to understand them. Um, and some people speak really quickly. They're hard to understand. So if you know that, that that's an issue ahead of time, then maybe video is better. But only if, if you have it really well planned out, it's going to be short, and it's going to be to the point, which I think you're going to talk about in a minute. But other than that, I would say live is best. The problem with doctors is their schedule. They have typically really busy clinical practices that can often pull them away unexpectedly. And if you're banking on them being available at a certain point in your trial and you don't have a backup recording of their testimony, if they suddenly become unavailable, what are you going to do? I mean, you need them typically to prove your case or to establish at least a certain element of damages. So it's a big risk to take, I think. I agree. I think the other thing we have to keep in mind is we have a lot of foreign educated doctors and they're brilliant people, but a lot of times their their accent is so thick that it's hard to understand them and having the ability to kind of put the subtitles of what's being said in the testimony underneath can be can be helpful. So what if some points that you can think of that you know you've used that uh, make for more compelling treating doctor direct examinations? So one of the things that I learned from you uh, early on is that with every witness, not just treating doctors, but with every witness, you find out immediately for the jury's sake, who are they, why are they here, and why should we care about their testimony? And so you get that out in the first two or three minutes of a video or even live testimony, why, why should we care about what this person is saying in order to move the witness along um, and also to continue to tell a compelling story. So I think a lot of mistake mistakes happen, um, especially in expert or treating doctor's depositions, when people jump right in and say, we're here today to talk about engineering opinions, but first let's go through your 9,000-page CV and talk about every single point in your CV before we move on to what the opinions are, and you've lost the jury. The jury doesn't care about the 9,000-page CV. They want to know 
okay, is this person a medical doctor and are they licensed? Okay, good. That, that's what that's what we need to know. Now, you do need the other testimony at some point just for for challenges to expert testimony, right? So if it's Daubert in your jurisdiction um, or Fry, you need to establish what you need to establish for them to be able to testify. But I don't know of any rule that says you need to do that right in the beginning. Yeah, I think the, you know, the basic basic qualifications like what kind of doctor are you? Do you let's say it's a back and neck injury? Does your practice include treating the back of the neck? And that's that. I mean, I think you later on you can go into like where they want to if you if if you need to. Where do they go to medical school? Are they board certified? All that stuff. But I think you know just at the beginning, you know, this is who they are. I mean, because especially if you're on video, you've got a, like a five to twelve minute window of attention, and then you're going to start losing jurors. And so if you spend that five to 12 minutes on, you know, what publications they have, what fellowships they did, what their job experience is, they're, they're not going to be paying attention uh, when you get to the point. What if some things you do for trying to get the doctors to get to the point early? Like, you know, basically, you know, what's wrong with this person? What are you doing about it? What did you do about it? How are they doing now? What's the future going to be like? I mean, those are kind of like the big points. How do you get them to do that and not go into every little finding on every little exam that they did? It's hard. There's uh, a lot of doctors feel compelled to do that because they want to, I guess, prove what they did, right? <laughs> prove that it's coming from a, a good place and they, they're they nervous, just like anybody that testifies. And so they just want to blurt everything out. It is hard to control any witness, including doctors. I think part of that comes with having a conversation in advance. Here's what we need to establish Building a like building some kind of trust between you and the doctor that says, "I'm going to ask you the question, and you need to answer the question I ask." We'll get to all the things you want to talk about, but we have to do it in a methodical way, right? We can't just let you go on and on and on. We need to. It has to be a question and answer format. I don't have a lot of good techniques for it, and typically, what ends up happening is we just edit out a lot of things, right? We get we get the piece that actually answers the question, and then we edit out the rest of it. But I don't know, Michael, do you have any special tips for the listeners on that? If I can get the doctor to meet with me in advance, which is uh, sometimes getting anything more than like five or ten minutes for the depot is hard, but we try. One thing that I have found helps is going through the jury charge, the damage questions with the doctor, because they don't get it. Like, they're so defensive, and when they're thinking of justifying their treatment, justifying their bill, and and showing that they did a good job, that you know sometimes that their aim is be more at, at talking about what a great job they did than talking about what was wrong with your client uh, and how that was caused by the crash and what and, and the fact that there are going to be future problems even though the doctor did the best job any doctor in the world could do, uh, medicine can't fully heal some of these people. And, and getting them okay, okay with that being okay, okay with, you know, and, and going over like what the standard is. I mean, you can, like in reasonable medical probability, you know, are they going to pay for the rest of life? Well, I don't know. They might get better. No, you're talking about might. In reasonable medical probability, 51% chance or more. Well, no, they, more likely than not, they're going to pay for the rest of life. Well, then don't say might get better. Let, that's a defense point. You don't need to bring that up. Dude. You know, it's, uh, it's hard. But when you can work with them and kind of get them to understand what the game plan is, what you're trying to do, it can make a big difference. But again, and just trying to get them out of that defensiveness, because these doctors are so, there's something in doctor culture where they're all so scared of lawyers, they're so scared of the medical board, they're so scared of, you know, there's either going to be a grievance or a malpractice case that they 
are more worried about many times just justifying what they did and documenting what they did and talking about how perfect what they did was than they are about everything else. And, you know, it's more important that we're talking about the truth and uh, when they realize that you're not on trial. No one's going to be asked, did Dr. So-and-so do a perfect job? They're going to be asked, were someone hurt? What are the consequences of this injury? There was a time, even a couple of years ago, where I was worried for the doctor about the question, didn't you meet with Miss Peacock before this deposition? Didn't she tell you what to say? You know, how long was your meeting? It was hours long? Oh, my gosh. You know, aren't basically making it sound like we're in some sort of collusion or some sort of cahoots. I mean, how do you deal with that kind of line of questioning? Well, I don't even worry about it um, because what juror doesn't expect us to meet with a witness to find out what they had to say? If we, I mean, you could if you want to. I think the more we make a big deal about it, the more it looks like we did something wrong. You can say, like, doctor, did we meet? Did I tell you what to say or did I, you know, ask you what you were going to say? I mean, there's a difference there. Um, maybe you consider jury selection. Now, before I come to trial, does anyone think I ought to talk to the witnesses and find out what they have to say before I bring up, before I file a lawsuit and bring it to court? I mean, of course, you, that's your job. Of course, we should talk to the witnesses and find out what they're going to say. It's not supposed to be a surprise. So, I mean, I think as long as the doctor doesn't like look nervous or cagey when they're asking those questions, and as long as we don't look nervous or cagey, uh, I think it's not a big deal. I mean, I don't think it's effective when I've seen it done at trial. Well, and I think, too, I think the biggest piece of it is that the witness has to be okay with it. If it if it seems like there's uh, something nefarious going on, then the jury is going to be suspicious. I think it when you're talking to the witness, reassuring them that it is absolutely acceptable that me and you are having this conversation but before you testify. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing that in ethical rules that prevents it or something like that. There, I mean, there's it's okay. And so telling the witness, when you're asked, did you meet with me? You just say yes. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. You just say, yes, I spoke with Ms. Peacock. And they might say, what did you talk about? And then I might ask the witness, what did we talk about? And they'll say, well, you asked me some questions and then you told me to tell the truth. And well, I don't know, that's what we talked about, right? Which is a totally acceptable answer. So I think reassuring the witness that it is totally okay that we talk to each other before the deposition or before you testify and nobody expects anything else, the better it will come off and the better it will play when that question is asked. The other thing to remember is, you know, if the other side's going to call their own, you know, their own paid opinion witnesses, if you're, you can ask the same questions, but you have to do it in a different way. So if they make this big deal, what well, did you meet with so-and-so? How long did you meet? Did they tell you what to say? Did you rehearse your testimony? Well, if you go to the same thing, then you're saying, well, you shouldn't listen to any of our people. Right. I mean, I think a, a way to approach it is like, hey, by the way, before you testified, you met with this lawyer, didn't you? Y'all talked. There's nothing wrong with doing that. He didn't put words in your mouth or anything. And that's normal, right? You wouldn't, you've never have, you wouldn't expect to ever go to trial without the lawyer talking to you about your testimony first to find out what you're going to say, right? Do you have any idea? And you're going to draw an objection to this. Do you have any idea why he made such a big deal about it then? <laughs> when we talk to our witnesses? And then they let them object. Who cares? I mean, but you know, you're making the point that they're just being hypocrites. And, you know, jurors don't like hypocrisy. So I think that that's the thing you can do with it. But it just, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I think the more, the more we have it in our mind that, of course, we're going to talk to witnesses before they go on the stand. Uh, what kind of lawyers would we be to put on testimony without doing our homework first? Uh, and when we don't feel like there's anything wrong, and as long as we're not telling people to lie, which we're not, uh, it shouldn't be a big deal. So how about uh, the use of, let's say, what I call magic words or magic phrases in a, in a doctor's testimony? 
to make sure that we just nail down, you know, causation, future problems. Do you think that's, you know, some of the case law says that's not absolutely necessary. What do you think whether people should do that or not? So I think you absolutely must do this in a deposition. And the reason, there's two reasons. (laughs) One, I will admit that the reason that I don't know, that the reason that I know that you don't have to use magic words in Texas is because one time I didn't use the magic words and someone tried to exclude my witness's testimony and it was horrible and it was stressful. And I, you know, I had to do all this case law research while I was in trial. And I, you know, it was a very stressful situation for me. And I learned that you don't need to use these magic words. So I would say use them because you know what they are. But two, what does it hurt? Um, <laughs> and then three, you don't have that stressful moment at trial where you think, oh, did did I get what I needed to make my case, right? Did I get enough from this witness to be able to play this witness's testimony at trial? You never want to be in a position where you show up to trial not knowing if your witness's testimony is going to be admissible. You don't want that up in the air. But then two, just as a more practical matter, having a question written out that includes magic words like reasonable medical probability and the causation stuff just ties everything together that the witness just testified about in a neat bow. So from a storytelling perspective, it's important because remember, the goal is to bridge the gap between liability and damages. And your doctor has just finished testifying about, well, then they had this surgery and I saw them on this date and then they, they're still having pain and all of this kind of stuff. So you want to be able to wrap up that testimony in a nice little package that summarizes what was the purpose of this witness. And those kind of magic words questions, we call them those, they, they help you do that, right? They help you wrap it up so that the story is clear, has an end, moving on to the next witness. Yeah, and, and make it easy for the jury. I mean, jury shouldn't have to guess from the gist of what was said. I make it clear as day, you know, doctor... Do you have an opinion based on reasonable medical probability as to whether the injuries you diagnosed were caused by the car crash on December 7th, 2022 are maybe even better? Do you have an opinion based on reasonable medical probability as to whether or not defendant driver caused injuries when he ran a stop sign on November 3rd, 2021 and crashed into Paula Plaintiff? Yes, I do. What is that opinion that the crash caused injuries? Why Why do you have that opinion? What is the basis for that opinion? And then same for it. Doctor, do you have an opinion based on medical probability as to whether or not my client uh, is going to have pain in the future? Yes. What is that opinion? What is the basis for that opinion? Just make it crystal clear. That way when you get your, if it's a, a depo, your summary judgment motion, if it's at trial, your directed verdict, of course, your appeal. You want to make it really easy to point there, and you also want to make it really easy for the jury. Like, yes, this is the answer. There is no, no one's going to be able to equivocate or argue that the doctor didn't quite get there. Clarity is, you know, clarity is our friend. Confusion always goes to the defense. And I would tell you that you should not be afraid, especially if it's a deposition, to ask these questions in different ways because you don't know how you might be allowed to play them at trial. So Michael gave a couple of examples right now. Um, of different ways you could ask the question, I would ask it both ways because I don't know how how it's going to play, whether the jury will let me say or whether the judge will let me say, did defendant driver rear-ending the plaintiff in reasonable medical probability cause, you know, his herniated disc? That might be too argumentative for this judge, right? So you want to have asked it in another way so that if your question is 
objectionable to this judge, you have it in multiple ways. <laughs> so I would not be afraid to ask it three or four different ways just so that I have some options about how I could play it, especially if it's a, a, a deposition that you're going to play. I agree with you 100%. Now, you know, I think it's, in, it's important. Here's a, a line I want to talk about a little bit. So it's important to get the doctors to upfront say what their opinions are, say it clear. But it's also important that we show our, that they show their work somehow and, you know, don't just say, take my word for it. I've seen defense doctors do that. You know, what are your opinions? And that's it. They don't give the basis. They don't explain how. They don't show how. But then on the other hand, you don't want to go through every single thing they did, everything said, every exam finding, whether it was positive or negative. Because sometimes they just want to read through their whole darn chart, and it's boring, and and it doesn't get to the point. So what is what are some things you found that help get the doctors to show the work without going overboard? So one of my strategies is to go in detail through the first visit with the plaintiff. What did you do? What did you ask them? Why did they come to you? What were they complaining of? You've gone through detail through that first visit. What did you recommend? Okay. So then you say, did they go, let's say they said, well, I recommended an MRI. Okay. Then your next question is, did they go get that MRI? And then we're not going through the next visit where they went through the MRI results. We're saying, what were the MRI results? Show us the MRI, right? Tell us what it says, those kind of things. And so from the first visit, you... As the person leading the story, um, you as the questioner don't have to reference individual visits because when you do that, it's a prompt to the doctor to say, okay, she wants me to go ahead and read my record here, you know, as opposed to just saying, what did the MRI say? You don't, they don't have to go into their individual record to tell you that, right? So that's, that's sort of the strategy I employ. And then once we say what the MRI said, we say, okay, so uh, once you saw that MRI, what did you recommend next? And then they tell you. And then you go from there without going through each individual record, which can be tedious, boring, and totally unnecessary. Now, I would say that if your treater saw your client very close in time to the deposition, maybe going through the specifics of the last visit would be important. It just all depends on what the treatment is that that provider gave to your um, client. But those are some of the, that's one of the strategies I use. Yeah. And when you can and when they'll meet with you is, you know, going through and like, let's say it's a back or neck injury case. They're going to have done an orthopedic and neurological exam. Find the findings that support the diagnosis. So let's say you have a hernia disc, you have a positive straight leg race, you have a positive, you know, some kind of compression maneuver, whatever, whatever they happen to be. Have them bring out those things and say, and what does that do? Well, that makes me suspect a possible hernia disc. That makes, you know, and of course, at some point you have to explain what the hernia disc is and all that stuff. But I think it's important uh, to do that. So they're not just talking about the, I ran these tests and what it meant in isolation. You want to, you know, want to say, well, he came in, he had pain in the back going down the right leg. What did that mean to you? Well, lots of things could cause it. One of those things is something called a hernia disc. So I was on the lookout for that. Well, what else did you do? Well, I did the physical exam and I found when I lifted his leg up, the pain shot down the leg. When I did this, when I did that, all those things were painting a picture of a potential hernia disc. What did you do to make sure? Well, then... You know, I wanted to do an MRI, so I can go, what's an MRI? And, you know, well, that way I can see, and I can see, can you show us? And they put up the picture, they show you the hernia disc. But before I did a surgery, I want to make darn sure that the hernia disc is what was causing that pain going down the leg. And then, well, what'd you do? I did something called an EMG. What's an EMG? What does that show? What, what did you find? And now you've got this picket on. Well, now that I was convinced it was a hernia disc, I want to see what we can do to fix it. So what'd you do first? Well, we tried some injections. What kind of injections? Blah, blah, blah. Then we tried the surgery. What'd you do? And just have it all fit together into one 
like all the puzzle pieces are fitting together to make one big picture rather than just being scattershot. And one of a, a technique that I use that I get objections to. So, you know, it's one of these where you ask it different ways to make sure that you can play your testimony, but you're tagging your story as you're going through the what everything the doctor did. So you'll say they came for an initial visit and then we went to the MRI. And so your next question is, after the initial visit, you reviewed the MRI. Yes, I did, right? What did the MRI show? Okay, it showed this and I recommended an EMG. So now we've done an MRI and an EMG. What was next? So you're you're building your story with your questions. So then your next question, they said, oh, I recommended surgery. Okay. So after you did the MRI, after you did the EMG, now the, the patient's ready for surgery, right? So you're showing their work for them through your questions. You have to be careful not to be leading or argumentative. So sometimes you need to ask it in an alternative, but tagging, especially with a doctor, tagging the key components in your question to move the story along is so critical to making their testimony understandable. Absolutely. That's a great point. Uh, and it's also a good time to take our commercial break. A little, a little word from our law firm, and then we'll be right back. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Okay, Mallory, now that we're back, I just want to ask you one thing that the defense always brings up in our cases is that dreaded word, degeneration. Do we have to run away from the concept of degeneration? No, I don't think so. Especially not Why in not? Texas. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's very dependent on your jurisdiction, I think. I, I don't know what the jury instructions are in every single jurisdiction, but in Texas, there are some really, really great jury instructions about something that is pre-existing but is made worse or complicated by a crash. Um, and that's what the case is about. Nobody has, it's basically an eggshell skull instruction, right? You take the plaintiff as they find them. If, if they have a bunch of degeneration that exists, that doesn't mean that they can't get hurt in a car crash. Of course they can. Everyone will admit that just because someone had a broken arm before doesn't mean they can't break their other arm, right? I mean, so there's... Uh, Accepting that um, and moving forward, knowing that they had something pre-existing, I think is just part of the story of this plaintiff. And the more you run away from it, the more it looks like you're trying to create something that out of thin air, right? It makes it look more to the jury like you're stretching the truth. Whereas if you accept that this is how they were before, they had this thing called degeneration, which we all have. And you know, for over the age of 23, we all have some degeneration in our spine because we move around and our discs move as we move around. That doesn't mean you can't get hurt in a car crash. <laughs> right. But it means it's easier to hurt you in a car crash. It's harder to heal up after a car crash. And it really, you know, they're not ready for it. What they want to do is they want to defend the case where we claim that someone's spine was perfectly pristine before and that everything on the MRI is due to the crash. And when we go back and say, yeah, of course they had degeneration, everyone does, but this made it painful when it wasn't painful before, all the treatments because of it, then the defense doctors are really easy to cross because they're wanting to fight you on, well, this is degeneration. The condition itself was there before. 
but they have to give up the what the symptoms weren't there before. Uh, and so, you know, telling our doctors they don't have to be afraid of degeneration, explaining to them what an aggravation is, uh, really can help. Even if they had some problems before, as long as they become worse because of the crash, that's good. And, you know, someone I'm sure will write in if I'm wrong about this, but I don't know any jurisdiction where you have to prove that a crash caused a disc herniation. I, I don't think that's a jury question anywhere. I think the question is, was this person injured <laughs> as a result of the crash? And injured means, do they have pain? Do they have a limitation? Do they have an impairment? The actual specific medical diagnosis does not have to be proved as part of the jury instructions that the jury is going to be asked. And reminding yourself that I don't have to win that this disc was herniated because of this crash. I just have to win that he didn't have pain before, he has pain now, right? So changing your mindset about what the case is really about, uh, I think makes a big difference. It's not about whether someone had a disc herniation because of a car crash. It's about whether someone was injured, whether they had pain, whether they had impairment because of the car crash. Absolutely. Now, one thing that you do really effectively that in our cases is the use of visuals. So you can give us some tips about how to use visuals with treating doctors. So visuals with treating doctors are critically, critically important. One, because most of them, like I said before, are not good storytellers. They're dry, they're dull, you need to break it up, and they're unclear. Visuals with a treating doctor should help clarify and support their point. Um, they shouldn't be throwaways, but they should be something that can help the jury visually connect to the story that they're telling. Visuals can be as simple as putting up the medical record to show the list of all the tests that this doctor performed. That's a visual. Um, and it's part of their medical record. It's something that you can show to the jury. A visual could be a handwritten list that you make with the doctor, which is where are all the places that this person complained of pain? Let's make a list together. What are all of the treatments that the doctor recommended? Let's make a handwritten list. And then visuals can get more complex from there. You can get visuals that are a visual of a herniated disc, right? So you can find some image online that shows what a disc looks like and where it is in the spine and what it looks like if it's herniated. They have little models that are handheld that you can have the doctor hold to show a model of the spine or a model of a herniated disc. Um, and then there's animations. Um, if you want to get even fancier, you can do animations of surgeries that were performed or injections that were done or even animations of how discs are herniated in car crashes, for example. Um, so there's lots of different options, but I will, I do encourage everybody listening to think about whether the visual helps to clarify or simplify the doctor's testimony. If it doesn't, then it's not a good visual. So some of these animations that can get really complicated are neither clarifying or simplifying anything. They're making it look more complex, more confusing, more where are we going with this, pointing the uh, finger at the wrong issue. So if you're talking about herniated discs in your animation, the, the jury thinks that's something that's really important in the case. And remember what I said earlier, you don't have to win that someone got a herniated disc because of the crash. And But that makes it seem like you do. So if that's a really big issue, whether the herniated disc was caused by the crash, you're pointing the evidence and the jury's focus at the wrong thing. So be thinking about that whenever you're deciding what your visual should be for a doctor. 
and, and what you want to prove and what you want the jury to focus on. I, mean, mm -hmm. I used to do, in almost every surgery case, a customized animation of the surgery for the doctor to use and then customized animation of all the injections. And then, you know, I realized when we focus all our testimony on the medical treatment, what do we get a verdict for? The medical bills. You know, we need to somehow work with the doctors on, yes, it was bad enough that the person had to have surgery, exactly how they did the surgery. I mean, our clients asleep for the surgery. They're not awake. So, yes, I mean, the doctor should describe the surgery. And if it's one that left, like, plates and screws, we should definitely put up those, those uh, x-rays showing the plates and screws afterwards. But at the same time, I don't know that doing a custom illustration of showing step-by-step -step of the surgery is really helps get the ball advanced instead if we can spend more time working with a doctor to try to talk about what are the impairment, what are the limitations this person has because of that, what kind of things would cause pain, what kind of pains are they going to go through, and then, you know, hopefully they'll go, you know, most medicine, my, my understanding, it's been more than six months to a year that you have pain, it's never going to go away, you know, so the doctor will say that, that's, to me, is more important, that they're going to continue to have pain, they're going to continue to have limitations, but, you know, getting the doctor on board with that and just remembering that, that we're not here to show how much we know or how cool or gory the surgery was, we're here to prove our case and, and get the jury to write in the answers that we want them to write in on those jury on those blanks in the jury charge. Michael, what are some other examples of um, demonstratives or visuals that you've used in doctor depositions? Sure. Well, I, I do a lot with MRI. If the MRI, if you can clearly see whatever there is, let's say it's a TBI case, you can see white spots in the brain or a decreased tracks in a DTI, or if it's a a spine case, a lot of what I've done are spine cases, and you can see the, uh, you can actually see the disc, and it's clear that it's there, then I'll use it. If it's not clear that it's there, I may or may not use it. Now, the defense is going to have someone that's going to put up the, the image. I want to put it up first and own it. If they're not, and it's not super duper clear, I might not use it. I might just use the report. I've done a lot of comparing before and after when there's been prior medical treatments, and sometimes those are just words. So we'll have like the, you know, if I have like two MRIs where they're clearly different, then I may put up a, the same image of the same disc from both to show the, how they're different. If I, if it's harder to, to tell, like you have to be measuring things, then I may just have the, the two MRI reports to show that it was only a two millimeter herniation and now it's a five millimeter, her, five millimeter herniation. Before there was no recommendation for surgery, now there's a recommendation for surgery. I mean, those are yeah. the kind of things that we do a lot. A lot of it's just a drawing of the body and have the doctor circle where it hurt. I think that's really, really important. Model spines, model skulls. I, I like models. I like things that doctors can hold and be interactive with. Some of the pain management doctors are nice enough to bring the big needles. And it looks really scary that you see this big needle and they show where in the spine and how far it goes to. And I think that stuff is also useful. I sometimes, uh, let's say it's a hernia disc case. I sometimes, let's say I have a hernia disc with good radiculopathy. I mean, it's not, all my cases aren't that clear, but let's say I have one. I may talk about before we get there so that the jury can make their own conclusion before the doctor was. You know, doctor, you know, what, what kind of injury do we, you know, are we looking for in this case, a hernia disc? Well, let's talk about what is it, you know, can you explain the spinal anatomy? We'll put up a picture. This is, these are the vertebrae, put up the model spine. Talk about what the disc looks like. Well, what is a hernia disc? How does someone get a hernia disc? What are the signs of a hernia disc? And we can write down, you know, you're looking for this, you're looking for this, you're looking for this, you're looking for this. You know, what are the tests that you would do? Well, you do a straight leg raise test. You can do whatever the other foraminal compression test. And you just list them out. And then when you're going through what the doctor did, well, did you do this test? Yes. What did it show? That was positive. Is that a sign of a hernia disc? Yes, it is. And you go through so the, so the jury's coming to their own conclusion before you even get to the MRI. Boy, this person must have a hernia disc. They have all the signs and symptoms of it. So those are just some ideas. I've done everything from just handwritten notes all the way up to like incredibly, stupidly expensive custom animations and illustrations. And 
they all have their place. It just depends on the case. But I don't know how many times we spent a bunch of money on something and then decided not to use it because it didn't serve our case as it was presented, as our trial strategy went. Right. I think you just need to make sure that whatever visual you're using is moving your ball forward, moving the story forward in a coherent way. I mean, if, if it's if you look at something and you can't immediately tell with a couple of sentences what it's supposed to mean or what it's supposed to tell you, then it's probably not a very good visual. <laughs> um, and it's it's going to be more confusing than it is helpful. You know, one of the other things I would encourage people to do is um, do physical demonstrations. So especially in car crash cases, if you have a C4, C5, C5, C6 injury, whiplash injuries, right? Have the doctor show how your neck moves in a whiplash injury on the video, yeah. right? So that, I mean, that's that's your pivot point. Of course, that's why that's where the, the injury is, is because that's where your neck is moving. So demonstrating that, you know, for the video is important. The same with your L4, L5 type injuries, which are pivot points um, in your waist. So if you're moving your waist, that's where it's moving. So having the doctor just demonstrate that just sitting in a chair can even be very powerful. Absolutely. And the more visual we can be to the extent, you know, that we, uh, without going overboard and, and making, just like I said, all about the treatment and all about the bills and not about the person. So I think we have to, you know, be very visual. It also keeps people awake if we have to do it in a video or even in a live courtroom. I mean, it breaks it up, makes it more interesting. But I'll just my thing is just really make sure that we're advancing the ball with the visuals. We're not just doing pretty visuals to explain the treatment. And you got to be careful. Like some of the visuals, think about why they were created. So let's say you have a minimally invasive de disc decompression where they're basically putting a big, thick needle through the skin into the disc and sucking some of it out. They make videos that show how that procedure is done. The point of the video is to show the patient that this is not a big deal, that you're not, it's not a major invasive surgery, they're going to go home with just a Band-Aid on. Well, does that help us with the jury? Why bother? That It's much better just to describe the procedure and move on than it is to go show that it was what the defense calls a Band-Aid procedure and not a surgery. Uh, so we always have to think about, you know, what is the point? What are we trying to prove and make sure that everything's moving towards that point? So wrap, you know, I think kind of wrapping it up, what is it you think that, uh, that we should do like at the end of doctor's testimony to go wrap it all back up again, just in case people kind of nodded off while it was going on? So you should definitely ask your magic word questions um, at the end, even if you've asked them throughout. You should wrap them up at the end with that and then leave the jury with what you really want to take away from this witness. This is a really painful injury or this is an injury that's going to be painful for the rest of their life or what, whatever the answer is that makes sense for your case, but wrap it up with your connection to the next piece of it. So it's typically going to right. be something non-economic, okay? It's not going to be about your medical bills. It's not going to be about the treatment. It's going to be about something like, you know, this will cause them to have a limp for the rest of their life. This will cause something. This this is very painful because of the way the nerves are positioned. But you want to leave it in a place where you're tying it to your next piece of your case, which is your non-economic damages. Um, and it depends on the case. Mallory, thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you. This is such an important topic. It's actually stuff we're training on within our firm. And we just thought it would be something that would be useful to people outside the firm as well. So I hope this is useful, that uh, you all go out and do great, compelling, direct examinations of your treating doctors and get fantastic results. And if you do, come tell us about it. Maybe we can have you on Trial Lawyer Nation to talk about how you won your next big case. 
In the meantime, I hope to see you all either at the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys October 6th through 8th in Austin or at Trial University in Vegas if you're there. Please stop by. I love people coming up uh, and talking to me. I'm actually very approachable. And so uh, please stop by and say hi. And if not, I hope you tune in next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.